Um, first, I'm Dennis. I'm one of the pastors here at Garden City. And I'd like to start with an apology. Um, I did not do well with the coffee this morning. I know that that's like a significant thing in churches. Um, like, I made the coffee, I followed my own instructions for making the coffee, I noticed the coffee coming out of the coffee maker, like, that looks like tea, not coffee. I thought maybe it's just a light roast, and maybe when I taste it, it will actually taste different, and then I took a sip of it, and I was like, no, this is awful. So then I abandoned the recipe. And so, guys, I have no idea what the coffee tastes like this morning. I even at one point to salvage it, took half of one that was there, brought it back and thought I'll use what coffee grinds I have left and just a little bit of water. And so there was a whole lot of effort, but a lot of bad execution, and I am sorry for that. Thank you, Regina. Appreciate that. With that, a hard transition into the sermon. In the fourth century CE, women and men, followers of Jesus, began leaving their homes and moving into the Egyptian, Palestinian, and Arabian deserts. The reasons they did this are varied and yet can generally be summed up in one word, salvation. They were seeking to do what Paul encouraged the Philippians to do, to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Paul writes it this way, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. These verses aren't focused on how individual people get saved. Instead, they're focused on how the entire Christian community in Philippi can together live out the gospel in their faith community, in their neighborhoods, and across their cities. Paul is exhorting his audience to work their salvation into their bodies so they can live it out through their bodies for the sake and well-being of their family, neighbors, communities, and cities. The women and men who left their homes and moved into the Middle Eastern deserts weren't, they were seeking new ways of living out their salvation in the midst of a culture they regarded as a shipwreck. They believed drifting through life and passively, passively accepting the values and interior ways of being their culture advocated would actually lead to ruin. And so they went into the desert seeking to build into their bodies the character and ways of Jesus. Not so they could escape the world, but so that they could live more faithful, humble, good lives in the world. Thomas Merton, who was a monk, author, theologian, social activist, he wrote this about the desert mothers and fathers. They had to die to the values of transient existence as Christ had died to them on the cross. 
and rise from the dead with him in light of an entirely new wisdom, living lives that taught them to lament the madness of attachment to unreal values, living a life of solitude and labor, poverty and fasting, generosity and prayer, which enabled their old superficial selves to be purged away in the gradual emergence of the true secret self in which the believer's inner reality is anchored in God through Christ. Church, that's the life I believe we want to live. I believe we want to be people whose lives are anchored in Jesus. Pastor Shack last week taught us about discernment. The ways that we can discern the ways we're attached to the unreal values and interior ways of being our culture presents is wisdom. We can discern what is the character and ways of Jesus, and we can build those ways into our bodies so that we can live them out for the sake and well-being of our neighbors and communities. I think this is what we want as a church. We want our individual and communal lives to be anchored in Jesus. But what are the unreal values of our culture? What are the interior ways of being we've uncritically adopted? How can we discern the ways we're attached to these values and interior postures, and how can we anchor ourselves more fully in Jesus? Today, we're continuing in our study of the book of Acts. We're focusing our conversation on a story found in Acts 13. It begins in verse 13. It ends in verse 52. I am not going to read to you all of those verses. Luke begins in Acts 13, verse 13, with geographic information. From Paphos, Paul and his companions. And can we just stop here for a moment and have a moment of silence for Barnabas? He's been on this journey with Paul. Like, Barnabas is the one that vouches for Paul in Jerusalem when all of the people are thinking about killing him. Barnabas is the one that goes and gets him from Tarsus and brings him to Antioch. Barnabas is the one that encourages his ministry. Barnabas is the one that goes on the missionary journey with him. And now all of a sudden, Luke can't even mention his name. Paul and his companions. Anyway, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga from Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. Now, to stop here for a moment, Luke tells us Paul and Barnabas, they leave Paphos, where, as Pastor Shaq taught us last week, they had just shared the gospel with Sergius Paulus, the Roman governor of Cyprus. They make a stop in Perga, and then they arrive in Pisidian Antioch, completing a journey that's approximately 310 miles. And it's worth mentioning, Pisidian Antioch is not the same Antioch as the one that we've been talking about in the other chapters of Acts. That one is known as Syrian Antioch. This is Pisidian Antioch. 
Pisidian Antioch is located in the eastern part of the Roman Empire in the region of Galatia. Just a random note, if you've ever read the letter to the Galatians and wondered which churches is Paul writing to, he's writing to the churches that are in and around Pisidian Antioch. The city was founded in 270 BCE by the Greek king Antiochus I as a military outpost, and it was refounded 300 years later in approximately 25 CE by the Roman Emperor Augustus. Augustus, when he refounded it, settled 2,000 military veterans and their families in Pisidian Antioch and then stationed multiple legions near the city, every legion consisting of 4,500 Roman soldiers. In many ways, when Paul and Barnabas arrive in Pisidian Antioch, they find a city with very deep ties to the Roman army. Archaeologists believe there was a gladiator training school in the city and that the city's large theater is where they hosted regional gladiator competitions. It's not a stretch to say that Pisidian Antioch was a city with nationalist tendencies and that was dependent on Rome, the Roman military, and especially the emperor for its well-being. Which helps give context for why the largest, most impressive structure in the city was the Temple of Augustus. It was known as the Imperial Sanctuary, where people would gather to worship the emperor as a god. It was built at the highest point in the city. To get to the Imperial Sanctuary, people had to pass through a large gate on which two inscriptions were written. One began with these words, for the Emperor Caesar Augustus, son of God, Pontifex Maximus, a title that literally means Supreme High Priest. The other inscription was a brief autobiography written by Augustus about himself. In it, he celebrates his own achievements, delivering the Roman world from war, protecting the Roman people from all threats of the empire's borders, his lavish financial gifts to the Roman people, his diligence in rewarding and honoring military veterans, and also his personal virtues. Paul and Barnabas would have seen all of this as they walked through the streets of Pisidian Antioch. They'd have seen the imperial sanctuary and the inscriptions on the gate. They'd have seen the gladiator school and the theater where gladiator events were held. They'd have sensed the nationalist overtones to life in the city. And all of this makes, at least to me, what Paul does next very interesting. Luke tells us in verse 15, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to Paul and Barnabas saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand. I don't know why. I had like 10 minutes this week where I was like, what, what of all the words for Luke to include, Paul motioning with his hands, like what was he doing with his hands? But he says, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. 
It's language that echoes Jesus saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's as though Paul is signaling to his audience, listen closely to what I'm about to say. It's going to work on multiple levels. You're going to hear one thing, but if you listen closely, you might hear another thing. Because what Paul's about to do is, for him, in many ways, very normal. He's going to proclaim the good news of Jesus. But as he does it, he uses some specific language that we don't necessarily notice as being unusual, but his original audience would have definitely noticed and paid particular attention to it. In verse 23, Paul says this as part of his gospel proclamation. From David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Savior. That's a word that does not stand out to us. But it's a title the people in Pisidian Antioch associated with the emperor. The religious system surrounding the imperial sanctuary taught that the emperor saved, rescued, and delivered people from their enemies. But Paul is intentionally co-opting that word and applying it to Jesus. Paul is making the claim that there is a savior and it's not the emperor, it's Jesus. Then in verse 32, Paul says, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Paul uses the word good news. It's the Greek word, euangelion. Throughout Rome, that word was used in the context of political and military accomplishments or victories. Paul is not originating the use of the word euangelion for the story of Jesus. He's co-opting the word. When a military victory was achieved, it was proclaimed throughout Rome as good news. The difference is that in Rome, the word is always used in plural forms. I know that sounds like unimportant grammar, but I love grammar, and I'm telling you it's not unimportant grammar, because it indicates that the emperor had to continually produce more and more good news to continually convince all the people that he really was who he said he was. He has to continue generating good news to continue to prop himself up as the emperor. Paul uses the word in its singular form. Paul, in essence, is saying to his audience, the emperor claims to be the Messiah and yet has to continually produce good news over and over. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus is the good news himself. He is singularly the good news. He doesn't need to prove himself over and over like the emperor. And then there's a little bit here at the end of verse 32 where Paul says that Jesus, by, he uses the words by raising up Jesus. The emperor is dead and in a grave but Jesus has been resurrected. 
Then in verse 33 and 34, Paul says, as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. My son. Paul is implying that Jesus is not a son of the gods like the emperor, but is instead the one and only son of God. He's making a very direct statement. The person your city and region worships is not who he says he is. He's not a god. He's not a son of the gods. He's a human, a mere mortal, and he is still in the grave while Jesus has risen from the dead. Paul's gospel proclamation is tactical. He sees Pisidian Antioch's geographic layout. He sees the imperial sanctuary. He sees it built high on a hill above every other structure. He sees the gladiator school and theater. He sees the way that the city is dependent on the emperor for its well-being. And he says to the people in Pisidian Antioch, the structures you've built your lives on actually aren't able to deliver you. They're not actually able to secure you, and they cannot hold you in the midst of your storms. The structures you've built your life on are hollow, empty, and powerless. But Jesus can rescue and deliver you. Jesus can secure you. Jesus will hold you in the midst of every storm. The trust structures, if you will, the people of Pisidian Antioch have constructed that depend on the emperor will all ultimately fail. Every one of them will eventually be proven insufficient. Rome no longer exists because the person they need to build their lives on is not the emperor, it's Jesus. It was Jesus, it is Jesus, it will always be Jesus, and it will always only be Jesus. Paul's gospel proclamation is almost an object lesson on Jesus' words in Matthew's gospel. There, in Matthew's gospel, the author records Jesus saying, therefore... Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Paul's gospel proclamation very specifically reveals the trust structures of the people's lives as sand. And then he invites them to see Jesus as the rock. But what about us? What are we building our lives on? Are we building on rock or sand? We may not be building our lives with an emperor 
as our foundation, but we're all relying on something to hold our lives together. Every one of us, probably unknowingly and unintentionally, myself included, have erected all kinds of trust structures, all kinds of these deep inner realities that anchor our lives. These trust structures, they form our inner worlds and become the things that we depend on when we're stressed, anxious, overwhelmed, or when we're frustrated, angry, or confused, or when we're worried about our finances, safety, or security. In other words, when we experience a storm, whether large or small, where do we turn? What do we depend on to get us through? And whatever our answer is to that question begins to reveal the trust structures that we rely on. When we feel anxious, stressed, or overwhelmed, what do we turn to? It's an honest question. I don't need you to answer out loud, but I would like you to reflect on it. When we feel anxious, stressed, or overwhelmed, alcohol, Netflix, Marijuana, porn, shopping. What do we turn to to cope with those moments of anxiety and stress and overwhelm? When we worry about our financial needs, where do we turn? Our own ability, a side hustle? What about when we yearn for relational intimacy? Do we trust that we know how to use our bodies in the ways that we want to to get what we know we can? To experience the pleasure that we crave? What about when we struggle to feel meaningful? What do we trust? Our own ability to achieve, produce, network, to make ourselves into a success in 10 easy steps? What about when we worry about our security? We trust our guns? The gospel Paul proclaimed revealed the trust structures of the people in Pisidian Antioch. And the gospel today is supposed to do the exact same thing. It is supposed to reveal our trust structures and then invite us to trust Jesus to build our lives on him, our rock. When we're anxious and stressed, we turn to Jesus. When we worry about our financial needs, yearn for relational intimacy, and struggle to find meaning in our lives, we turn to Jesus. The interior postures that our culture has taught us is to turn to so many other things instead. 
But we, as followers of Jesus, are invited to turn to Jesus. And also, in some cases, therapy. (laughs) Really. (laughs) Because some of the trust structures we've built throughout our lives are due to the trauma we've experienced or endured. It's due to the wounds that we carry. And sometimes we need a wise counselor to help us find and experience the healing Jesus offers. Church, the direction of our lives is Jesus. The direction of our lives is to be people whose entire being and reality is anchored in Jesus alone. Which is why I want to end by introducing a spiritual practice. I am apparently becoming a pastor who ends every one of his sermons by inviting you to participate in a spiritual practice. Two weeks ago, we talked about fasting. How you, anyone, how we doing? Good, great, okay, some thumbs up, some responses, thank you. I know that there were like at least 10 to 12 of you who signed up to do it with me. I've done it four times. Um, Friday was not a great experience with it, to be honest. I was, just please don't ask Keely about how Friday went, okay? <laughs> In the course of our normal everyday lives, we build trust structures of feeling, thought, and action that are more aligned with the world than Jesus. When we feel stressed or overwhelmed, we've taught ourselves to cope with alcohol, a coping mechanism that's approved by our world and yet misaligned with the heart of Jesus. Not that we're not allowed to have alcohol. We're not supposed to trust in it to get us through our stress. Unlike any other practice, solitude allows us to develop a freedom from these ingrained trust structures that hinder our ability to become more like Jesus. Dallas Willard in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, and listen, I contemplated not putting this quote in here because if, as we read it, you might be like, no, nah, I don't want to do that after reading this quote, but we're, we're going to. <laughs> Dallas Willard in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, he writes, in solitude we confront our own soul with its obscure forces and conflicts that escape our attention when we're interacting with others. Thus, solitude is a terrible trial. For it serves to crack open and burst apart the shell of our superficial securities, our trust structures. It opens out to us the unknown abyss we all carry within us and discloses the fact that these abysses are haunted with our wounds and our trauma. We can only survive solitude if we cling to Jesus there. And yet what we find of him in that solitude enables us to return to society as free persons. I don't want to be a person who rails against this, and yet our entire culture seems oriented around eliminating solitude. We're just never alone. When we're in the line at the grocery store, I actually remind myself, no, I did this when I was a kid with my mom and I could just stand in line and do nothing for five minutes. 
instead of those moments when I'm like, no, the pirates are still bad. Those moments even when we want to be alone, those are moments where it's like, well, I can still text people. Like we're never actually alone. And I think in many ways we, we might recognize we might recognize that that's not what we're designed for. And yet also what Willard writes is we, th I think we've all recognized too that it's in these moments where we are alone, when we're experiencing solitude, we are faced with those things that haunt us. It's in those spaces where we see the abyss and what's in it and we don't like it and so we avoid it. And yet, something that I have learned in my own life is that the only way we experience true transformation is to enter the valley. We have to enter into the valley. We want to live life on, our, on the mountaintops, and yet our, I don't think we become different people on the mountaintops. I think we become different people in the valley. And solitude helps bring us there. It's also a practice we see all over Jesus' life. According to Luke, who's our guide through Acts, in his gospel, he said, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I've developed some sayings with my youth soccer team, things that I just repeat to them over and over that are truisms about soccer. One of them, open space, always favors the offense. Tight spaces, always favor the defense. Truisms about soccer. Church, there are truisms, I think, about the Christian faith, too, and one of them is this, if Jesus needed to do it, so do we. If Jesus needed to fast, so do we. If Jesus often practiced solitude, we probably need it too. If Jesus prayed intentionally, we probably should too. If Jesus needed it, we do too. So this week, will you join me in practicing solitude? We'll start small. This week, will you consider carving 15 minutes out of your morning or night three times? even if it means waking up 15 minutes earlier than normal. And this is what we'll do in those 15 minutes, and I'll send all this out in our reflection email. We will find as distraction-free an environment as possible. I recognize many of us have roommates, partners, or kids, 
So finding a truly distraction-free environment might be hard. If you have children, at least in my home, I found that the shower isn't even a distraction-free zone. So we'll find as distraction-free an environment as possible. Once there, we'll take long, slow breaths and pray a simple, repetitive prayer. Something like, Lord, have mercy on me. Or come, Holy Spirit. Or even something as simple as speaking Jesus' name over and over. And then we'll simply try to be silent and still in our being, focusing our thoughts on Jesus' goodness, justice, mercy, and love. And I guarantee you, about three minutes into your attempt at this, your minds will wander. You will think about your days. You will think about things you're struggling with. Your mind will turn to the greatest conundrums of our time. Again, like, why can the Milwaukee Brewers win, but the Pirates can't? But we'll do the work of continually trying to bring our thoughts back to Jesus. And then we'll close by reading a psalm and praying a prayer of gratitude. Henry Nouwen a theology professor, and at least for me, a spiritual guide, refers to solitude this way. He says, solitude is not a private therapeutic place. It is the place of encounter. And I don't know about you, but I need more places of encounter with Jesus. So this week, let's practice solitude. Let's seek to encounter Jesus. Let's give the Spirit space to reveal the trust structures we depend on instead of Jesus. And then, let's invite Jesus into those spaces. Because the more time we spend with Jesus, the more we'll become like Jesus, and the more we'll do what Jesus did. Because the only trust structure we've ever needed is Jesus. It was Jesus. It is Jesus. It will always be Jesus. It will always only be Jesus. Amen. Pray with me. Father, thank you for these words recorded in Acts. For the brilliance of Paul's God's for the ways that we can read it and learn it and see the ways that it speaks to our own trust structures. Jesus, we want to become more like you. We want to spend time with you. We want to become like you. And we want to do more of what you did here in our families, our neighborhoods, and our city. We love you, Jesus.